The lesson today is a confessing community. And we're going to find this in Nehemiah chapter not chapters 9 and 10. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we saw that God's people had begun to weep as they heard the words of the law. Obviously, they were realizing the gravity of their sins. But Ezra interrupted their time of consideration of sin because it was actually a time of festivity, a time to celebrate God. And because God's word is supreme, they obeyed. But when the festival was over and the booths had been put away, the tug of conviction was still very strong among the people. The people still needed to repent of their sin. And they did, they did this through a prayer recounting the mighty and gracious works of the Lord in contrast to the sinful works of his people, both past and present. Now, the first point today is confession begins with a proper view of God. We find this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all of the stars of heaven worship you. You, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. So a quick glance back to the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 9 reveals that this, this is a gathering of the returned Hebrews in Jerusalem. It was in the same month that they came together for the reading of the law. But this congregational gathering was because they were ready to confess. That they had an inward desire for repentance, and it was expressed in their outward expressions, fasting, wearing sackcloth cloth and dust on their heads. The foreigners had been dismissed, not out of malice or national pride, but because they likely still were worshiping other gods. So the gathered descendants of Abraham stood, heard the words of the law, and verbally confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. Though this generation of Jews had not committed the sins of the generations before them, they stood where they were, subservient, rebuilding the shell of their formerly glorious city, because of the lingering effects of the unfaithful Hebrews who had preceded them. But confession to God and worship of God go hand in hand. Even when the guilt of our sin is so great, we must begin our confession with a proper view of God. The Levites and other respected leaders began by telling the people 
to stand up to worship and acknowledge the Lord. <clears throat> First, they acknowledged that he is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, this is an exact phrase that had been used by David in Psalm chapter 41, verse 13. After acknowledging God's eternal nature, the focus turned to his glorious name. The Israelites blessed the name of the Lord, exalting it with all blessing and praise. The name of the Lord is a reflection of all he is. When we praise the name of the Lord, we glorify him for who he is, comprehensively, all-knowing and still merciful, omnipotent and compassionate, holy and willing to dwell with us. The Jews then began their prayerful song, turning their attention to God's power and creativity while establishing his authority and indescribable control over all that exists. God's authority over the heavens, earth, and seas, as well as his power to maintain all life that exists within them, reveals his sovereignty as well as his wisdom. Once their minds and their hearts were focused on God's incomparable identity, they turned their attention to his actions throughout the history of the Israelites. Like the famous quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, Jewish history can point to a very similar truth. Those who forget the sins of the past may commit them just as their ancestors did. The Levites tried to help the people remember their history. God, call, God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, promising to make him into a great nation, blessing him as well as others on the earth. And as the Levites proclaimed, it was God who chose Abram, brought him out of the pagan people, and changed his name as his faithful heart revealed. God also made a covenant with Abraham, giving him the land that was occupied by a variety of other nations. God's promise to Abraham revealed not only his power to shape history, but also his long-reaching plans. Abram, Abraham would never see the day that he would occupy the land as its owner. Instead, he spent his days as a stranger and a foreigner, just like the next two generations, living in tents, but trusting in the promise that the land would belong to their people. The time that lapsed between God's promise to Abram and the actual conquest of that land by Joshua was around 600 years. During that time, God's people had been to Egypt as slaves and back, wandered in the desert for 40 years for their unfaithfulness, and finally were able to dwell in the land that God had promised them. The Levites summarized it perfectly. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. So now with the eyes clearly focused on the Lord, worship and confession could begin. The Jews had come with the intent to confess sins, but they knew that the proper perspective was imperative. God is perfectly holy, he's loving and powerful, and he holds all authority. We lift our voices to praise his name, and we choose to see his faithfulness, leading us to thank God and confess our sin. Now, the second point today is confession acknowledges the reality of sin. 
We find this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 through 21. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. Even after they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they had committed terrible blasphemies. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness forty years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Now, verses 9 through 15 serve really as a summary for us, recalling God's faithfulness to the descendants of Abraham as recorded in the book of Exodus. It's a glance to these verses that reveals a pattern. Every clause has the word you as the subject. You saw the oppression. You performed signs and wonders. You divided the sea and many more. Looking back through the lens of time past, these worshipers could see that God was intimately present in everything that happened to their people at what many considered to be the most pivotal, pivotal time of their history. Verse 16, however, begins with one of the most jarring words in the English language, but. The Levites placed it perfectly at the beginning of verse 16, to contrast the faithful, steadfast, perfect love and leadership of God with the faithless actions of Abraham's descendants. But our ancestors acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commands. Looking back at the actions of our own ancestors, we aren't usually quick to make judgments. Rather, we excuse them saying that, well, times were different, situations were extreme, and, and the world was really just a different place. But we all serve a God who does not change, and neither do his standards. Sin at the time of Babel is still sin today. Arrogance is always arrogance. So as we consider generational sin, we should consider not society's standards and situations, but actually God's perspective. We've been given the clear instruction for thousands of years to love the Lord and love others. If our family members did not live up to that standard, we can honestly say, as the Levites did, that they were stiff-necked and disobedient. The ancient Israelites didn't lack for knowledge. Moses always taught them exactly what God had said. The problem was that they lacked obedience, refusing to listen to God and to remember his wonders done on their behalf. Their unbelief led them to faithless sin, to appointing a leader to take them back to the slavery of Egypt, to make an image of a calf, and to commit terrible 
blasphemies. There's a second but, though almost hidden in the middle of verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. First appearing in Exodus 30, chapter 34, verse 6, this was God's description of himself to Moses. It was repeated several times in the Psalms and some of the prophets, even some of the prophets, in jo like, for example, in Joel chapter 2 and Jonah chapter 4. In spite of their stiff-necked rebellion, God was still gracious, still compassionate, still slow to anger, he was also still judge, still holy, and still demanding holiness. But God's slow fuse revealed his patient mercy on his people, even as they snubbed their noses at him. Now, beginning at the first words of verse 19, the attention turns back to the Lord. Just as the Levites had recognized his faithfulness in verses 9 through 15, they picked up with you, the you statements again, recounting God's faithful acts. You did not abandon them. You sent your good spirit. You did not withhold your manna. You provided for them. God generously gave all this compassion, love, leadership, and provision, even as his people were attempting to go back to their land of slavery and give credit to a handmade golden calf. As with the Israelites, God's Spirit is a valuable resource that we take for granted so much of the time. The Holy Spirit was not with every follower of God in those days. That is a post-Jesus blessing. But God had given His Spirit to instruct them, which would have helped them to believe and obey. On top of that, they passively observed the decades-long miracles before their very eyes, their clothes lasted for 40 years in the wilderness, and their feet did not swell. God provided for his people as he still does today. And sometimes, just like the Israelites, we tend to take it for granted, ignoring him, leading us into sin that we must confess and repent from. In the wilderness, God was both merciful and not abandoning the Israelites, and just and the unfaithful. The, the, he was just in the fact that the unfaithful died without seeing the promised land. God would continue to reveal judgment mixed with mercy for generations after that, including in the exile and then their return to the promised land. So the, the last point in this lesson is confession humbly seeks pardon and restoration. We see this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 32 to 35. So now our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us, our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. You are righteous concerning all that has happened to us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them when they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them. 
and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them. They would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. In the verses that precede this passage, we see another summary, starting with the conquest in the book of Joshua and recounting the books of history and most of the prophets. The cycle of God's people in all of these books follows this pattern. First, they walk close to God. Second, they turn from God and toward idolatry. Third, God turns them over to their enemies. Fourth, they finally call out to God, repent, and he delivers them. Start over at step one. Repeat for 700 years, and that's basically what verses 22 to 31 reveal. It's a cycle of sin, repentance, and deliverance. God had warned in verse 29. God was patient in verse 30, and he sent prophets in the Spirit in verse 30 as well. After so much rejection, though, he decided it was time to turn them over to their enemies for exile. But he still did not completely abandon them. A testimony to his grace and compassion. But then verse 32 begins with the words, So now, signaling that the Levites were wrapping up their time of worship, worshipful confession, focusing again then on God. In recounting their history, the people saw that God is great. He's mighty, awe-inspiring, and he, had a, and he was a covenant-keeping God, and that they just simply were not. So they confessed their sin. Confession is like really a deep cleaning or a spring cleaning of sorts. When we finally purge sin from our life, we're able to clearly see God and how he has acted in power, love, and faithfulness toward us. As the humbled group of God worshipers bowed before their awe-inspiring God, they asked for mercy one more time. Do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us. In other words, please consider our punishment to be full, because it's touched us all, from the highest to the lowly. Every descendant of Abraham had been touched by the judgment of God. They had been conquered, been exiled, and endured much suffering. But it worked. They turned, their back, they turned back to God. They saw his righteousness in the midst of their wickedness. And now their hearts were once again obedient. Humble confession agrees with God and gives him the authority to determine right and wrong. Also, humbled confession never makes excuses or points fingers or shifts the blame to someone else. Humbled confession acknowledges sin honestly, but it still professes hope for tomorrow because of our faithful, merciful God. The summary of the short-lived nation of Israel is brief in verse 34. In essence, everyone, kings, priests, and people, disobeyed God. Though, occasionally, a leader would come into power who would lead them to turn back to God, the conviction was not lasting. Once Joshua, David, Asa, or Hezekiah had died, the people revealed that they weren't following God, but only his appointed leader. And even with the abundant goodness and spacious and fertile land given by the Lord, 
Abraham's descendants did not turn from their wicked ways because their hearts were hardened and they did not believe. This, of course, is the opposite of repentance, which includes turning from sin to love and serving the living God who has blessed us chiefly in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation from sin. If we peek ahead one more verse, we see the cumulative effect of Israel's rebellion. Here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors. Basically, the Nehemiah-led Jews realized all the blessings that they'd been given at the hand of the Lord and saw clearly that they had squandered them. Though the remnant had returned and God would never completely abandon his people, they were being ruled by a foreign power and they knew that they would never be the same. But God always keeps his promises. He promised to make Abraham into a great nation and to be a blessing to all peoples on the earth through his descendants. As with the promised land, this didn't happen in Abraham's lifetime. But the seed of Abraham saw the fulfillment of that unbelievable covenant when Jesus was born. Now, I want to close with a famous voice from the church, Tony Evans. He will always be my, be I am who I am, which means he won't necessarily be who we want him to be. God exists within himself. We have zero ability to define him or shove him into a box of our choosing. When you approach God on the basis of who he says he is, you're ready to see him as I am who I am, or Yahweh, the relational God. And you don't want to miss Yahweh. He offers a relationship that's both powerful and deeply personal. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and thank you for this affirmation of our faith that we need to turn from our sin, confess to you, and walk in the sunlight of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those that are sick and hurting today, that you would just be with them, comfort them, heal them, and raise them up. And today, specifically, I pray for the caregivers, that you would just strengthen them and give them the determination that it takes to help their loved ones recover and get better. And Heavenly Father, I ask you, just to illuminate this lesson in the minds of everyone who listens to it and just give them the message you have for them today. And I pray, Lord, that you would send the Holy Spirit to illuminate our footsteps and guide us and tell us to turn left or to turn right this week. And send us into a direct contact with those that need to hear of the loving light and, and mercy of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. For it's in Jesus' precious holy name that I pray. Amen.